So we're going through the books of the Bible, uh, finding Jesus in each book of the Old Testament first, and then we go to the New Testament. Again, if you don't read the Old Testament, the New Testament is hard to understand. If you, if you only read the New Testament and don't read the Old Testament, okay, you have to read both. Both of them are very important uh, because the Old Testament is physical and the New Testament is spiritual. Very good. Okay. So, as we're going through this, we're going to go, uh, we went through Genesis and then Exodus and now what? Leviticus. Which is a, whoo, there's a lot of laws, okay? A lot of laws. Uh, especially, um, you know, eating laws, uh, cleanliness, um, how to do sacrifices, all kinds of stuff. And so, some weird laws that are still on the book as of today. You ready? No margarine in Wisconsin. Well, that's at least how many websites will report it, talking about strange laws. The reality is that you can get margarine within the state of Wisconsin, but it comes with a series of strings attached. For instance, they are uh, stipulations regarding the size of the container, no more than one pound, and the size of the front of the packaging must plainly say margarine, at least as large as any other type of lettering on the label. It has to be in color print. You'll find it in, in the books of Wisconsin Statute 97.18. Another weird law. Ready? Bingo sessions must not last longer than five hours. <laughs> According to North Carolina Department of Public Safety Rule 14-309.5, the number of bingo sessions conducted as or sponsored by an exempt organization shall not be limited to two sessions per week or such sessions over five hours each session. And people have more time than that to write these laws. But anyway, here we go. Ready? This one's for Vermonters. Flatlanders are not Vermonters. It's a law. An old state law from the 1800s that was recently renewed by Governor Phil Scott restricts the title of Vermontner. Or Vermont. What, what did you say when we came up here? Vermontner or something like that. She could say. Um, to anyone whose parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents were born in the state, anyone else for legal purposes, is designated as a flatlander. So, I'm a flatlander. So, there's some weird laws, okay? And so when we get into Leviticus, there's going to be some weird laws. I mean, just out there. But, uh, in, in the culture and in the context of what they were doing, God had these for simple fact, either it was for holiness, it was for uh, diseases so they wouldn't die, or it was not to be like the rest of the nations that were crazy worship about other gods and other demons. And so when you read the book of Leviticus, some of it might not make sense, but if you go back in history and look at the context, it might give you some help. And so the third book of the Bible, containing the laws relating to the priests and Levites, Levites, not Levi genes, sorry, Levites, and to forms of Jewish ceremonial observances. To many Christians, Leviticus seems dull and full of law, but Christ is in there. And we'll, we'll talk about that. In it, God demonstrates the painstaking process for approaching his unfathomable holiness. Now remember, God is holy. He is righteous. He is wonderful. He's majestic. He cannot be around sin. He cannot be around evil. And so... These were the laws to try to help people to understand that God is holy and righteous. And the law, remember, is not bad. The law was there to acknowledge that we can't do it alone. 
that we are not going to accomplish all the laws. He shows his own desire to dwell in and among his people, and so he has this sacrificial system set up so the blood can get us in the presence of God. And I know you're thinking, wow, that's a lot of animals, that was a lot of blood, that was a lot of grain, and it was. But God had a purpose, and it connects to the New Testament. This conveys the ordinances for cleanliness, worship, relation given to the children of Israel to be with the lawgiver himself, which is God. Law itself was handed down to allow men and women in the proximity with God and enjoy human thriving. Instead, it demonstrated man's kindness of inability to achieve real or lasting righteousness. So if it was our righteousness that saved us, we should have never sinned. So the first time we sinned, our righteousness is done with. It is a scarlet. It is, it is trash. And we can never get that back. It's like somebody saying, um, okay, every ice cream you buy, you have to give me 10 cents forever. You'll have all ice cream you want, but every ice cream you have to give me 10 cents. And one day, that person doesn't have 10 cents, and they still eat the ice cream. Can they ever get the ice cream back? No. They're never, they can put the dime in the person's hand, but they're never going to get the ice cream back before they paid the 10 cents. And so from that point on, the deal's off. And so the first time we sinned with the law, the 613 laws and the Ten Commandments, we should have been cut off by God, period. And so Leviticus is a way to have man looking at the law and saying, I can't do it alone. It has to be with God. And so... There was one in particular law. It was called the scapegoat. Now, we all, all know that, right? When uh, we're at a job and that person didn't do it, but we blame them and then the scapegoat. So everybody else goes free, right? They can go and they can get in trouble and they get fired, but we're all safe, right? Or what, what about kids? You know, we have four or five kids. They damage the, uh, a, a window from a 105-year-old house that you know, uh, had a uh, potato gun and, I, and we shot it over to the old main and the 100-year-old window broke and I was the scapegoat. You know why? Because the president's son was standing right beside me. But obviously they figured out that it was him too, but they pointed all at me. I never picked up a potato gun after that. Anyway, I was blamed and we had to pay about $150 to replace that and a college student paying $150 that was not good. So we understand the idea of a scapegoat, that that person gets blamed for the wrongdoing of other people. And so one of the holiest days of the Jewish calendar is the Day of Atonement. We call it today Yom Kippur. It is the only day of mourning and fasting God ever gave to his people. It was the day that established fasting in the Old Testament and to mourn for sin. Fasting was to give up food or drink for a time, so you can say that God sustains me more than food, or God sustains me more than drink. And so in Leviticus chapter 23, 26 through 32, it says this. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement, I mean, he had this down specifically. Remember, God is not the God of confusion, and it's very specific, very logical. It says this. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, 
those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You should not do work at all. Man, maybe we should have a day like that. Anyway, this is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Whenever you live, wherever you live, it is a day of a Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves from the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening you are to observe your Sabbath. So on this day, the great high priest acted alone, and he, became, he, he got two goats. From one, he sprinkled blood on it on the mercy seat. So he took the blood and sprinkled on the mercy seat. Now, the mercy seat is where God dwelled in the Holy of Holies. And that, that was, he was sitting on, anybody know? The Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And the blood was sprinkled on, on that. And then what happened with the other goat is that they would put their hands on it and acknowledge all the sins of the nation and all the sins and the sins of the priest, put their hands on it, and then let it go into the wilderness. And that was the scapegoat. With the bloody hands, he held the head of the live goat and confessed the sins of Israel. Laying on the hands identifies the goat with the sins of Israel, and it left. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We are all sheep. We have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And here's the connection. Jesus is the scapegoat for us. We were in our sins. We were not righteous. We are not holy. We are not good. And God said, look, we are street that have gone astray. And Jesus is our scapegoat. Jesus took all of our punishment, all of our blame, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our unholiness, and he became the scapegoat. The high priest put the scapegoat into the arms of another priest who took it outside the city and drove it into the wilderness. Israelites were stationed at intervals to see that the scapegoat actually disappeared. Like there was actually people along the way saying, go, 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 go. Okay, you're free. Go. Never to be seen again. And the news that the goat was gone was related to the station to station so that it was known for a few minutes later in the temple. Their sin was atoned for for another year. See how all the laws really pointed to Jesus. And just as the news was passed, uh, we pass on Christ to other people. Christ has put away our sins in perfect and complete manner. On this holy day, God was impressing on the people that they were sinners, that they were lost sinners, and we needed a scapegoat. 1 John 1, 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus has been, become our scapegoat. Leviticus begins with Moses talking to God from outside the tabernacle, God's dwelling place. Although God's desire was to commune with his people, they could not approach him because he was holy, and they were not. God wanted his people to be closer to him than outside the tabernacle. He wanted them to be in his tent, a spiritual kingdom. And that's why Jesus had to come. So if Jesus is our scapegoat, then we can look at all the other other offerings that were in Leviticus. When you read through Leviticus, there's a lot of our offerings. There's some burnt offerings, there's some sacrificial offerings, there's it's just it's a crazy list. And so each of them point to Jesus. So Jesus is the burnt offering. 
A bird offering to God for various reasons, including asking for forgiveness, expressing thanks, or renewing their relationship with God. To make an offering, the Israelites would find a male bull, ram, or bird, and then kill it, and finally present it at the, temple, the tabernacle gate. The animal could not have any defects. Now listen to this. Okay, physical. Remember I said the Old Testament is the physical representation. And in the New Testament, it's a spiritual. And so, the animal had to have no defects. So, what was Jesus called on the cross? The sheep, right? He was the sheep. He was the Lamb of God. And so, if he's the Lamb of God and he had no sins, then he became the what? The burnt offering with no defects. One of the offerers uh, presented the sacrifice. The priest placed the hands on the altar. The offerer laid his hands on it and identified the sacrifice to show thankfulness that they took the sacrifice from them. Hmm. So Leviticus is a little bit deeper than we thought. It's just not a bunch of boring laws. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for what? Sins. The righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Unlike other offerings, the burnt offering was voluntary. Now get that. The offering was voluntary. God's not going to... Uh, make you love Jesus, okay? You have to voluntarily have faith and put your trust in Jesus. And so the fire completely consumed the burnt offering on the altar, leaving nothing but ashes. The burnt sacrifice offering illustrates how we should approach God and worship. Like the offer in the ancient times, we don't need, we don't have to worship God, we choose to worship God. We don't need to sacrifice our money, our time, and talents. We want to because we love Jesus and because he became the burnt offering. Like the sacrificial animal, Jesus did not have any defects. He took our place on the cross, the righteous for the unrighteous. He gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Because Jesus died on the cross as our innocent, flawless substitution we don't have to offer any animal sacrifices over and over again. That would be kind of weird, right? Have an altar down there, and we have an animal, and I'm going to sacrifice it in front of you. Would you ever come back? Probably not. <laughs> I'd probably get arrested. So Jesus has become that. Jesus is the grain offering. This is really cool. The grain offering consisted of grains and olive oil mixed. The offering was split between God and the priest. So remember, the Levitical priesthood did not own land. Okay? They didn't own pretty much anything. And so anything that was sacrificed would go to God first and then to the priest so they would eat and have food. The priest would reject grain offerings mixed with yeast. And what was yeast representation? Sin. So in the New Testament, yeast is a representation of sin. That's why we don't have any yeast in the bread, the communion wafer, because it's God's body and Jesus' body had no sin or no yeast in it. And because, and that, they had the offering, and it was free from sin. The grain offering by itself was not enough. It could never be offered alone. It always had to be accompanied by a blood offering. Isn't that interesting? The grain offering had to be accompanied with blood. Everything comes back to blood. Now, today we would think that would be nasty. But spiritually, the blood had to be 
applied to us from Jesus. As with the burnt offering, the grain offering was, again, what? Voluntary. Jesus is our sinless sacrifice. Because of what he did for us on the cross, now we can present ourselves to God mixed with sin without fear of being rejected. We are still sinners, but we are forgiven through Jesus. If you haven't picked Jesus, if you're not following following God through Jesus, then you probably have no sacrifice. And you should be fearful. Jesus is our peace offering. The peace offering was for thanksgiving, a vow of payment, or a free expression of the worshiper's goodwill towards God. It was only offering that could be by any breed of animal without defect. The offering was to be the best part of the animal. The rest of the animal could be eaten. The peace offering was also voluntary and the only offering that could be eaten by the people. The peace offering is a type of personal relationship that Christ followers have with God. Remember, he is our peace. He is our prince of what? Prince of peace. Not on the outside, not around the world. He is the peace within. And hopefully when we all follow Jesus, then wars will go away because we're supposed to be at peace. And so Colossians 1.20 tells us that Christ made peace with his blood on the cross. See, that's why I'm so excited about reading the Old Testament. It's all pointing to Jesus. Then the last but not least, Jesus is our sin offering and our guilt offering. Let's, let's hit with the sin offering first. Sin offerings were provided atonement for sin. Atonement is the Hebrew word for comporum. Comporum comes from the verb kafir, which means cover over. Because humanity's very nature is sinful, man must have things right with God. And the only way to do that was through Jesus. There you go. We're getting somewhere. I like this. Unlike the burnt grain offering, the burnt and the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering was mandatory. Everyone had to do that. Why? Because we're all sinners. It's mandatory to go through Jesus. That's the only way to God. Priests made a sin offering on behalf of the whole Israel on the Day of Atonement and at Pentecost. Two feasts were covered in finding Jesus in the feast of the Old Testament. The offerer brought the live animal to the altar and the sinner laid his hands on it. <coughs> then the animal was slain and the priest put the blood in the, on the horns of the altar. The priest sprinkled the blood inside the holy place of the tabernacle and whatever blood was left over at the base of the altar. The innocent animal body was then burnt outside the camp. And where was Jesus hung? Outside the city. There's all kinds of connections, guys. You get deeper in the word of God, I'm telling you, it just, it's like, it's a never-ending cold. It's awesome. Hebrews 10.22 says, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from guilt conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Interesting. And Jesus is our sin offering. Like the sin offering in ancient Israel, Jesus' sin offering was mandatory. He had to be delivered to the enemies. In the same way as the blood of the innocent sacrifice was sprinkled inside the holy place of the tabernacles, Jesus' blood is also sprinkled on our hearts. And then the last one, which we really can't get rid of unless we have Jesus. 
Jesus is our guilt offering. The guilt offering also provided atonement for sin, but instead of covering sin committed in ignorance or unintentionally, like the sin offering, the guilt offering covered sin committed intentionally. That means you meant to do it, such as deceit, fraud, lying, stealing, or any sin that God tells us that is sin. An offerer could make the offering any time they committed an unintentional sin. So if you had an uninten- uh, a sin that you were, 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 were aware of, you would go to the priest at any time at night. The guilty party would bring the priest the ram without defect, and the priest would make the atonement for them. The wrongdoer also had to make restitution to the owner. The idea was that the wrongdoer had to make things right. Matthew 5, 23 through 24 says, Therefore, if you have an offering, your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and reconcile to them, and then come back and give your offering. That's in the New Testament. I wonder where they got that from. The physical sacrifice has been translated to a spiritual reality in us. Jesus is our guilt offering. Christ redeemed us by paying the ransom for our sins. We were redeemed or bought back from Jesus. Jesus made things right with God for us. Because of what he did, we now have peace with God. The sacrificial system was put in place in the Leviticus time was only what? Temporary. It wasn't to last. Why? Because Jesus is the Lamb of God. It could not wholly remove man's sin. However, the cross put an end to the sacrificial system once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice satisfies God's holy requirements. And because what he did on the cross, we can now enter in God's holy presence. We can actually pray to him. We can talk to God through Jesus. We can actually be with God. The restoration of Adam's sin has been restored in Jesus. He took the sin away from Adam. He took the sin away from us. He took the shame and the guilt and he put it on Jesus. And now we can get to God. Hebrews 13, 15 says this. Through Jesus, therefore us, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. That scripture makes so much more sense when you read Leviticus. It is a sacrifice. It is a choice daily to say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do and not what I want to do. What God wants me to say, not what I want to say. What God wants me to think, not what I want to think. What God identifies me as and not what I want to identify as. It's a sacrifice. It is putting it on the altar daily and saying, look, God, you are more important than anything in my life. I'm wrong, you're right. Therefore, let us continue to offer to God a sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. In Genesis, Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman and the creator. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb and the manna. In Leviticus, he is our high priest who sacrificed himself to fulfill all the laws in Leviticus. So when you read Leviticus, it's not boring. Well, maybe some of it is. But we know now that was pointing to Jesus. Understand that. And when you read the whole Bible, when you follow the whole Bible, it is all about Jesus. Let's pray.